we're going to go to Genesis 4 and pretty much stay right there. I'd love for you to look at this in your own Bible. It'll stick with you more. Yeah, you'll understand it more and more likely to remember anything we learned today. Six months from now, if you'll take a Bible and follow along with me. I was uh, taking a class some years ago over at the University of Alabama, and um, it was a class I was studying communication. And, um, and so one of the required classes was a class on persuasion, which was pretty interesting. You know, I was preaching at the time and going to school, uh, you know, at night and stuff. And so anyway, I was taking this class on persuasion. It wasn't a religious class at all, but it was fascinating because I was hearing this stuff as a preacher, you know. And so one of the things that this class on persuasion was about was, or one, one area that we focused on was the role of fear in persuading people to do or not to do something. So it was, it was pretty fascinating. And so we studied various like ad campaigns that, you remember the, like this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, some of the stuff like that. Like what, what, kind, of, what kind of role fear has in getting people not to do something or to do something, you know? So it's pretty interesting. I'm going to tie this into kind of what I want to accomplish in this short, like last week and today in just a minute. But just, uh, just bear with me for a second. What was interesting about it for me was that it was fascinating that fear is a pretty good motivator in some ways. Fear of what will happen if you drink and drive, for example, can keep you from drinking and driving. Fear of what might happen to you if you use drugs can keep you from ever trying drugs the first time, you know, stuff like that. So, so it works. But one particular nuance that, that they were studying at the time, probably still are, is that sometimes fear can have the opposite effect. And studying those cases when fear can lead actually to increased behavior, and, and kind of as they, as they studied it, they, they sort of figured out that what happens sometimes is you can scare people, and it might help them not to do something, but if there is a sense of hopelessness in them, like if they think, I can't stop drinking, or I can't stop doing drugs, or I can't stop overeating, or whatever it is, I just can't, that fear can actually make the bad behavior worse. I thought that was pretty interesting. And, and it happens when a person feels helpless to change something. Then they might drink more, do more drugs, eat more, exercise less, whatever behavior you're talking about. Now, I thought of that because when we talk about a story like this one, and last week when we studied about the fall of Adam and Eve, right? And this week we're going to talk about the fall of Cain. When we talk about sin, we've got to do something, and, and this, is a, this is a struggle I feel when I, when I do a lesson like this or any lesson where the, the main focus of this is about something bad, is that there has to be a dual emphasis, it seems to me, when we study the Bible. Specifically, when we're studying passages that paint an, uh, paint an ugly picture like this one does. There has to be an emphasis on the seriousness of sin. You might call that fear. There's a role for fear, right? Sin is bad and it is serious and it will wreck your life. It'll tear your life apart. You've seen it before in your own life or somebody else's life, and you've stood helplessly to the side while you've seen somebody wreck their life. 
we've got to understand when the Bible tells us about sin, it is not something to play with, right? Sin is serious, it is bad, and it is awful, okay? But at the same time, God is so good. He is so good. And if we emphasize the seriousness of good to the exclusion of the goodness of God, we create despair and hopelessness, and we can, I don't think we want to do this, but we can actually make sin worse when people realize how awful it is, but they don't, they don't understand how good God is, and so they experience this feeling of helplessness or hopelessness. I can't do better, therefore, I might as well enjoy sin as much as I can. They, they just, they just kind of go full bore into it. If we emphasize the goodness of God to the exclusion of the seriousness of sin, we create a different kind of an environment, and that is somebody who thinks God is good but doesn't understand that our sin is an affront to a holy God. And so we de-emphasize holiness. See, we can create hopelessness, or we can create a lack of appreciation for holiness. You see that? So when you hear a story like this one, and when you read in the Bible in general, and you read about some of the stuff there, and you, you read about what the Bible calls sin, what it says about sin, how God responds to it, God does some pretty drastic things in response to sin, don't, don't water that down. Don't, don't turn away from that. Uh, don't, don't walk away from it and say, well, that's the Old Testament God, or you know, that's the hellfire and brimstone God. I got away from that when I, was, when I got out of high school, got away from that church, I got away from that or whatever. Uh, don't do that. Let, let the story stand, okay? Just read the story in light of what God ultimately does and who God ultimately is. And so when we have that kind of dual emphasis on sin matters, man, there's a ton about it in the Bible. If you're visiting with us today, you may be your first time here. You know, this story we're going to read about today, you've heard it before, right? It teaches us something about sin. This is what sin gets into your heart. It gets a hold of you, man. It'll mess you up. But, at the end of this lesson, we're going to end on a, on a, on a, on a note of hope. On a, we're going to be going in a different trajectory, I hope, because the story has embedded in it, like every story you read in the Bible that has an emphasis on how bad sin is, there's always, inside the story, somewhere, some hope. And it points to the future. That's why we read the Bible in the whole story of the Bible, right? We read every story over against the entire story. So we read a little story in the middle of a big story. And that's what we're going to do today. So Genesis 4. Long kind of introduction here. Set the stage for a story that probably you're pretty familiar with. And it is a story about Cain and Abel. Now, Sean read the first part of this. I asked him to read verses 1 through 7. We're actually going to go a little bit beyond that today because we've got to get to the, the murder part of it. But I want to, which is, you know, a focal point, a main focal point in the story. But we're going to set the stage for that discussion with a couple of things and just kind of walk through the text with me this morning. That's kind of a, a funny statement, and if you just isolate it from the context, I've gotten a man, like this woman, single woman, comes home to her mom and dad, I've gotten a man, you know, I've, I've found a man. Um, or uh, a guy who comes home to his parents, I've gotten a woman, you know, I've found a girlfriend finally. So that's not what he's talking about, obviously. This is, uh, this is Adam uh, and Eve coming together in their physical relationship. She conceives a child, she gives birth to Cain, and she makes a statement. This is a common biblical formula, you know, in the Old Testament especially where somebody has a child and gives that child a name and makes some sort of a statement. This is why he or she has named this, because of the situation. So she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And what that probably means is the name Cain sounds like the word gotten or acquire, the Hebrew word. 
And so she's reflecting on the goodness of God here, I think. She is saying, after everything, after all the stuff of, that we studied last week, Genesis 3 stuff, you know, the fall, and God pronouncing the curse on the ground and pronouncing this relationship struggles that men and women are going to have, that humanity is going to have, and the earth itself is, is messed up, and we, you know, we're, things are a mess. So Genesis 4 starts out with a note of hope. Okay, but in the midst of all the brokenness, God is going to help us to fulfill our calling. So he told us to multiply, to have children, to take care of the earth, and God has worked in my life to bring about the birth of this child. So I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This is a statement of hope. So you're going to notice in our story, like so often in the Bible, we talked about it last week, you've got bookends here. You've got verse 1 saying, there is good in the world. Yes, chapter 3, things are bad. But it's not all bad. God is still working. I have gotten a child, a male child, with the help of the Lord. There's a note of blessing. When we get to the end of the story today, a lot of bad in between, but there's going to be good at the end. You know what? That's kind of the way you read the Bible, you know? Genesis 1 and 2, everything is what? It is good. Revelation 22. What do you have in, in Revelation 22? Everything is good again. But in the middle of it, what do you have? You got a lot of bad. This, this, this is kind of the biblical story in a kind of a microcosm. You know, you got good, then you got bad, but ultimately it's going to be good. And so that's the way I think we've got to read Genesis 4. I've gotten a, a man, I've gotten a child, and God is taking care of us, and He is blessing us. And then, okay? You read the rest of this first paragraph that Sean read for us a minute ago. She has another child, his name is Abel. And something happens. To be honest, we don't know exactly what went wrong here. We speculate a lot on this. I was reading one commentary this week, and it made a statement that I think will stick with me for a while, and it was something like this. It said, when you have a lot of questions about what isn't said, remember the most important thing when reading the Bible is to read the lines that you're given instead of reading between the lines. And so there's often a point when we read... For example, we read a story like this one in Genesis 4. There is a temptation to try to figure out what is not said and why it isn't said instead of just reading what is in front of us. And so I think what we've got to do here is, instead of speculating about, well, why was Cain's offering not accepted and why was Abel's accepted? Well, the Bible doesn't say. In fact, I think that's the point of it. It's irrelevant. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story isn't what happened with Cain's. The point of the story is how Cain responded when things went south. That's the point. And also, we'll get to the end of this in a few minutes, and we'll talk about, like, the mark of Cain. Man, so many people speculate about, what kind of mark did God put on Cain? And what, what in the world is that? That's not important. It doesn't tell us. What is important is what that mark did. We'll talk about that in a minute. So let's read the lines in front of us, and let's kind of avoid the temptation to try to figure out what isn't there. Maybe God had a reason for not putting it there. So when you look at this, Cain's offering was not accepted. Abel's was accepted. And then in verse 6, very important passage here, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, let's talk about this for, for just a minute. The beast crouching at the door. Actually, a book written by a Jewish rabbi with that title. I kind of stole the title from his book. Um, 
And he, uh, this, this rabbi, when he wrote about the early chapters of Genesis, he believed that this statement here in Genesis 4, 7 represents a lot of what we're learning in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. It is about what happens when humanity chooses to walk away from God. And so this, this language here is pretty interesting. Um, I don't know what your translation says. Mine says, the English Standard Version says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And there's something interesting going on here that we probably wouldn't notice. There's some grammatical stuff here that's a little bit unclear. But the reason the idea of beast comes in here, and I think legitimately so, is that this word that's translated sin is crouching at the door, this word in, in the days in which this was written and read, there was this common Babylonian myth about a demon or a beast that would crouch in doorways. Perception. People believe this. Many people in the ancient Near Eastern world believe this, that there was this, there was this beast, this, this demonic entity who would wait in doorways. And so you'd have to be careful because you might walk through the doorway and the beast would be crouching at the door waiting on you to go through this Babylonian myth. And this word was used in that way. And I think that's exactly what the writer here is doing. He's using this myth with which his audience would have been familiar. And he is saying there is a demonic entity, so to speak, kind of personifying this, this sin thing, this entity, this Satan and his minions, Satan and his influences. It's like that Babylonian myth, which is not true, but there is something behind it that is true. Sin is crouching at the door. This is the influence of the beast. Appreciate Tori's prayer, bringing in New Testament there. Like a roaring lion, right? So it's not foreign to Scripture to, to, to see here this presence of a, of a demonic influence, person, being, entity that's crouching at the door. It's strong language. And so that's what I was saying to you a minute ago about sin. When we talk about Satan, you know, I don't know how you feel about him. Um, we, go, we go to different extremes. Um, C.S. Lewis writes about this quite often, in fact, um, in Screwtape. There's a sense in which some people overemphasize Satan, and they become obsessed with demonic possession and so on. I don't think that describes most of us. The other extreme is more likely to be true of us, and that is we almost believe he's some mythical creature um, some fairy tale like, you know, this imp or whatever, this, this uh, I don't know, it's, it's just, he's not really to be taken that seriously. Influenced by our present society's disdain for the supernatural, and we can find ourselves believing that if we're enlightened people, then we disregard beliefs in supernatural creatures, right? So that might be where we are over here. Truth is, uh, the Bible paints a very clear picture of Satan, and he is real, and he is working, and he's still working in our lives today. He's there. He's crouching at the door. There's no reason why we should believe that this verse doesn't apply to us today. You know, again, he's like a roaring lion, right? Seeking whom he may devour. So he's, he's working. When you read Genesis 3 and 4, you know, when you read our story here, I, can, I just, can I just encourage you, take this stuff seriously. 
it doesn't mean you've got to be hopeless. It doesn't mean you walk around in fear. It doesn't mean that, that you're powerless to do anything. But, man, there is a, there is a fight that we've got to be fighting, and it's real. And he's, he's working, and he's in the lives of your kids and grandkids, and he's, he's in our culture, and he's in the lies that so many of us are, are believing, and he's, he's in every aspect of our society around us. We're immersed in it, so often we, we kind of lay down our arms and quit fighting. He's crouching at the door. That was the warning God gave Cain. Cain, you're vulnerable at this particular moment because you're discouraged and because you're angry and because you're envious. He's crouching at the door and that is when he does some of his best work is in those moments when we are let down. We're discouraged, we're angry, we're envious. He's crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You know what we see here? I've kind of hinted at this or stated it outright. We see Genesis 3 again. This is what we see. Uh, this is Genesis 3. In case you missed it the first time, different characters. Some of, the, some of the characters are different, but the story is the same. Let me, let me show you a couple of things here. If you've never noticed this, how you can know this to be true. We're going to get to the hopeful part, but I want you to see this is bad, and this is the story of humanity. It's a story told again and again and again and again. It's a story being told right now in your life and my life and the lives of our of, of, uh, fellow, fellow Americans and people you work with and go to school with. This is a story that's being told again and again. God's telling it the second time in Genesis 4. So notice a couple of things. Let's just, I'm going to take about three minutes and compare Genesis 3 and 4. And I want you to notice a couple of things, several things that are the same so that we might understand what God is doing us. He's telling us that as a result of the fall, the fall is going to keep happening. Okay? It's going to keep happening. So in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 4, you have a single line describing the offense accompanied by several sentences of dialogue between, the, between God and the offender. So if you read on in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. That's all we got, just one sentence there about what Cain did. And then it's followed by, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, did you notice this? This is exactly parallel to what happened in Genesis 3. There's a one-sentence statement about the offense followed by multiple lines of dialogue between the offender and God. You notice that after the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Remember that? We talked about it last week if you were here then. God's response to them is in the form of questions. Do you remember what happened in Genesis 3? God said, uh, you know, who told you that, were, well, he first said, where are you? And they said, who told you that you were naked? You know, remember that? God responds with questions, exactly what he does here. He begins by asking questions. 
In, um, in chapter 3, when he confronted Adam and Eve, he said, What is this that you've done? Here he comes to Cain and he says in verse 10 of chapter 4, What have you done? In chapter 3 and verse 17, after the fall, he put the ground under a curse. You remember that? That is the curse that God pronounces on the ground. That's Genesis 3, 17. Here in verse 11 of chapter 4, he says, we just read it, you are cursed from the ground. Do you notice all these parallels? One more. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden at the end of chapter 3. Here at the end of chapter 4, Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord. In fact, the language is sort of emphatic here. I want you to get this, all right? Adam and Eve, the, those who know the language, tell us that it, it teaches something that you may have not noticed before. Adam and Eve, say the garden is here. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Adam and Eve go here. The language is emphatic with Cain, though. Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord east of Eden. So there's this, there's this kind of progression. Not only do we have the fall redone, we got the fall redone on steroids. That's what we've got here. We got, we, got the, we got the garden over here. Adam and Eve are out of the garden, but Cain, Cain is off the rails. That's, that's the idea. That's, that's the kind of language. So it's, it's, he's using similar language, but in some cases it's emphatic language so that we might get the, this, this sense, man, this is not good. This is, this is bad. I said there was only one more. Let me give you one more. Eve, why did she sin? In part, at least, because she was envious of God. Remember, Satan said, God's trying to withhold something from you. You could have something God is trying to keep away from you. Eve was envious of God. Cain killed Abel because he was envious of Abel. So you've got envy at the root of the fall in both Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. This is the story of humanity. The very last phrase of our text, of our part that we're studying today, is at the end of verse 16, east of Eden. And this language paints this idea of separation from God farther than previously. East of Eden. This is where we live now, folks. We live east of Eden. We live in the world that has been created by our own rebelliousness and stubbornness. It is a world that is dominated in so many ways by the consequences of sin. Did you notice, you know, back up when it describes what Cain did, when God confronted him, well, initially, even before the sin occurred, the ultimate sin of murder, God said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He said, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. See, what happens is Cain was walking in the footsteps of his parents. And those footsteps were motivated by so many things that still plague us today. He was envious of his brother that led him to anger toward God and toward his brother, which led him to a point of violence. 
I probably don't need to connect the dots for anybody here, but I feel the need to do it anyway. You look around us at the world today, and you see that in so many ways, we live in a world characterized by envy, wanting something you don't have, wanting something somebody else has, being jealous of somebody having something that you don't have, leading us to, to feelings of brokenness and bitterness and anger on the inside that leads us to act on those, either verbally or physically. I couldn't help but think early this morning when I was kind of reviewing this about the headlines yesterday, about the mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, motivated apparently by racist impulses. What do we have with stories like that? We have envy, we have anger, and we have violence. That's where it goes. These feelings of inadequacy, I don't measure up, I, I, wish, I, don't, I wish they didn't have what they have, or I wish I had what they have. These feelings of brokenness and inadequacy on the inside leads us to these feelings of bitterness and anger which sometimes results in physical violence as it did yesterday. Other times it results in a different kind of violence. Sometimes it just leads us to speak verbally things that are wrong. You know, just, I don't know, you just look around us today, and again, you can connect the dots, I'm sure, in your own life and in your own observations about the world that we live in. It is everywhere around us. This is the East of Eden world. This is the world characterized by the sin of Adam and Eve and the sin of Cain. And to be honest, the sin of you and the sin of me because we do the same thing. It may not result in a mass murder. How often have we all been guilty of envy and anger and acting inconsistently with those impulses because we live east of Eden. You see, the, the story here, it's, it's easy for us, I think, to read this story and read it like history, which I believe it is. You know, I think you believe that too. It's a true story. This is actually something that happened. But read it almost like only as history. When actually it's more than that. It's about what happened and about what is happening. So it's something that, that God is telling us in the early chapters of the book of Genesis about the way things are. And, and in so many ways, these, these chapters are answering the questions that we all struggle with. Why is the world the way that it is? Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 5, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. This is, the, this is the reason the world is the way it is. And it's not just because of those bad people out there. It's because all of us have given in in some way to these same impulses. And that's why we've got to take this seriously. He's crouching at Cain's door, and he's crouching at your door too, and mine. And he's trying to get us to be angry, and to be bitter, and to be envious, and to be jealous, and to be violent. The uh, one commentary that I enjoyed reading this week says this, just in, in, again, comparing Genesis 3 and how it kind of leads us to Genesis 4. And the way that it acts here in Genesis 4, he says this, if chapter 3 represents the fall of humankind, 
Listen to this. This is pretty insightful. If chapter 3 represents the fall of humankind, chapter 4 represents the fall of the family. If chapter 3 shows the infiltration of sin into the human race, chapter 4 documents the impact of sin on the family. Sin brings internal strife. See that? So, so you, might, you might read this on like a big picture since Genesis 3 is what's happening to the world. And this is what happens when the same attitude gets inside a family. And so, we see it messing up relationships that are very important to us and families. Envy, anger, and bitterness. It breaks families apart. It destroys these relationships. You know, in, in Genesis 3, it's what he said. Your desire shall be for your husband. He'll rule over you. I mean, the statement that God made there is, is parallel to what he says here about sin crouching at the door and you've got to rule over it. I mean, this language here implies these broken relationships. And why are they broken? Why do we struggle? Why do we struggle ourselves in families and at work, in school, wherever? Why do we struggle? Because of envy and because of bitterness and because of anger. And here, he's applying it to the family. And that is why sometimes we see it in marriages, for example, of unaddressed anger simmers for years and becomes bitterness. And ultimately, if not properly dealt with, it explodes in some sort of way. You know, this is Genesis 4. This is the fall story again and again and again. All right, remember what I said at the beginning, though? We got to do two things. We got to take this seriously. This matters. It's, it matters, and some of us aren't taking it seriously. I know that's the case. I know it's the case. Because we've all been there. You know, not just you, not, not just me, but, but all of us. There are moments in our we just don't take this seriously. We get caught up in the business of life and blame other people, like, you know, like Adam and Eve did, and Cain just played. Ignorant, you know, I don't know, what are you talking about? I don't even know what the, what the problem is, you know? So like we do, act like it's not even happening. We've got to take it seriously. But at the end of the story, there's the mark of Cain. Don't, hey, don't get bogged down in figuring out what the mark is. It's not important. He didn't tell us here because he didn't want us to know. And because it's not the point of the story. But you get down to the end of the story, to the end of our part of the story, the Lord put a mark on Cain. And basically Cain is saying, look, people are going to kill me. My life is hopeless. I'm separated from you. And because of this, I'm going I'm, I'm to be killed. You know, what, what, I can't even make it. And God says no. Verse 15. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. You know what we got here? We've got grace. We've got God showing up as a response to human sin with, a, with an act of grace. You see, you've got at the end of that fall, Adam and Eve, what do you got? You've got God showing up and, 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 and clothing them, giving them the skins of clothing to cover up their nakedness, to, to cover up their vulnerability, right? And at the end of the story of Cain, after he's committed murder, that was, you know, after his anger and bitterness and envy, God comes to Cain and he comes to him with an act of grace. And that's the way the biblical story goes. That is the story writ large. This is it. This is it. This is a biblical story. There's blessing in creation. There is bad in the fall. And there is grace 
in Jesus. And so as Christians, like I like, I like, and I'm doing some of that with this series on Genesis, I like reading some from, from Jewish rabbis, but to be honest, I need a little bit more than what I can get from Jewish rabbis because they don't read past Malachi. And we've got to read past Malachi to get to where the grace ultimately comes to us. And it comes to us in the form of Jesus. He is the covering for Adam and Eve. He is the mark, as it were, upon Cain that gave him protection. Jesus is the one who comes to us in our envy, in our brokenness, in our violence, in our sin. And He protects us. And He gives us hope. That's the story of Scripture. It's a story told in little stories over and over again so that we might see the big story that leads us ultimately to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, you know, we study this Old Testament story. You know, where's, where's Jesus in that? Well, here, I hope, I hope you see how this points us to there because you and I are Cain. We're, maybe we haven't committed murder, but we've spoken badly. We've, we've spoken badly to and about others. Maybe we haven't committed the sin of murder, but we have gossiped and we've lusted. You see, that is our story. But the story ultimately comes to a point where we see that God steps in and He gives us redemption and hope through Jesus. Because Jesus takes upon Himself the consequences of our own rebellion. And He gives us in Himself the blessings of His obedience. And so He wants to give you His righteousness today. If you will submit to Him and identify with Him and say, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. You can come today and we will baptize you into Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And that is when Jesus comes to your life and he pronounces this blessing and this protection over you. This is the story of Scripture. I hope you'll come today for baptism. Maybe you've already been baptized, but you need to come back to God because you've, you've strayed. You've, for whatever reason, you've gotten caught up and distracted. And you want to come home today. We'll pray for you. Let's stand and let's sing this song. Hear the sweet voice of Jesus.